Although our guests this week are managing partners of a registered investment advisor, nothing in this podcast should be considered an offer of Multicoin's investment, advisory services, or should otherwise be confused for investment, tax, legal, or other financial advice. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Lightspeed. Today, we have Kyle Samani from Multicoin. Kyle is one of the most independent and clearest thinkers in crypto. Kyle, welcome to the show. Garrett, Mert, thanks for having me on. Excited to be an uh, early, early guest of the new Lightspeed show. Yeah, we're, uh, we're lucky to have you. I want to start with one of the primary debates in crypto right now, which is modular versus monolithic. I know you kind of have a spicy take on this. Um, what are your thoughts on the topic, and why do you say monolithic is a misnomer? The correct term is integrated. Um, if you have any kind of substantial understanding of the history of technology, like this debate has been had many, many times. Um, starting as far back as like the IBM mainframe and like the, the reason that IBM was like, here, Microsoft, like go for it, make our dumb operating system is because like they thought the value of the system wasn't being integrated. Um, and you've seen this pendulum swing back and forth at different layers of the stack. Uh, obviously, in terms of PC components, you had Wintel kind of rise in, in the 90s. And then obviously iPhone kind of led to reintegration in terms of mobile context. In software, you've seen something similar. Um, AWS started as a fairly um modular platform and has slowly been integrating up the stack with pass and with all of their ai tools and whatever and now they have a mongo competitor and whatever call center tool you know like so you you see this playing out in in silicon you see this playing out in in hardware configurations you see this playing out in oems you see this playing out in operating systems and, and everything else kind of moving up the stack um the important thing to take away is not that there is a universal answer or a universal framework uh, on how to think about which pieces of the stack should be integrated versus modular. Um, the, the, there isn't an answer because these things vary as a function of uh, like different layers and how those layers interact with each other. And then they also vary over time. Um, the most important example here being like Apple and integrating all the pieces in the iPhone together and like swinging the pendulum away from uh, modular components and towards integrated components, especially with with systems on a chip and, and the full integration therein. So, um, th- there isn't an answer to the question of modular versus integrated. Um, it's just important to recognize that, like, this debate's been had many times, and actually, typically, both configurations coexist. Uh, Microsoft did not kill Apple. Um, the existence of iPhone does not preclude Samsung from having a very large chip business. The existence of uh, whatever Celestia Ethereum doesn't preclude Solana from existing, etc. Um, these things actually, you, you typically see kind of both configurations coexist. It's pretty rare that like one kills the other. You have rare exceptions like Cisc versus Risk, but like basically speaking, and, and that's not really integration versus modularity. That that's just more of a question of complexity and chip design. But like uh, these debates have been had. Um, and uh, so that that's kind of comment A is like there there isn't a universal framework. Comment B, and, and this is probably actually the more important one, is um, like you need to understand like what is the objective you are trying to achieve. Uh, uh, in my opinion, like the customer of a blockchain is the developers, and developers want to uh, build as good of applications as possible while doing as little work and thinking as much as possible. Both of those statements, or actually those variables, are gray and have are multifaceted in terms of the inputs that that comprise them. So you can't make kind of universal statements 
But like one thing you, you can say pretty definitively is all of these modular things, OP, OP stack, ZK stacks, supernets, you know, whatever, pick your flavor of choice. Um, they are all increasing the complexity that developers have to think about um, across many vectors. Uh, modular people kind of assume that that's isolated to like this vector of the security assumption between the bridge of the L2 and the L1. And that's like very myopic view of that, but but it kind of fails to capture the more the broader social reality, which is like, okay, well, if your users have assets on another chain, are they getting over? What if you need to bridge out? Uh, are there on ramps for your new chain? Are there are there not? Uh, are exchanges onboarding directly there? Like, there's a limited amount of UI on the withdraw function of Coinbase. Um, like, there's all of these weird things that emerge. Address form. I mean, apparently, I learned this recently. On even on different EVM L2s, the address formats change across these things. So like the token contracts or whatever, like Aave is not the same on Optimism as on Arbitrum. And like that's a new form of social complexity that every developer and every wallet has to, you know, like you got to deal with all this shit. Um, and and so you just keep increasing this, this complexity um, in dealing with all of these problems. Uh, and uh, I think that that complexity is is being pretty dramatically underappreciated by most most developers in that in that world. So you put it pretty well there, and you painted a very balanced picture. I would say the sentiment in CT is very in CT crypto Twitter is very modular dominated. People seem to be like eighty percent modular bullish, let's say, and. They see monolithic as a bad word, which integrated. Saying it should, yeah, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't even be monolithic. It should be integrated. Why is that? Why? Why is the popular discourse so dominated by this modularity talk? And how can we? What are your thoughts on how to fix that, or maybe make it more balanced? I mean, just look at the market cap of ETH versus Sol. Like that's like kind of the simple answer. Uh, uh, I I hate being, I guess, almost like. Tri tribal about it, but but I, mean, I, th I think that's basically what it is. Um, most people are just going along with whatever their bags say, which look, you can say the same thing about me. So maybe I'm the one who's not thinking. This is the thing that crypto has that does not exist in other technology markets, which is like you have public bag holders in very large quantities. Um, even when like the basis for which the kind of core business winnings uh, the the traditional vectors on top of which businesses would would win or lose um, opportunities uh, have not yet been been defined. Typically, people become public bag holders once the major questions have been answered. Um, and in the case of crypto, that's just not not the case. Uh, and so, bag holding effects are uh, very real. Um, in terms of how to change the discourse, yeah, I don't know. I mean, Justin Drake popularized the term monolith, which which is pretty frustrating to me um i mean he's a very smart guy he generally ha does have a good sense of history um and you know I, I was i was a little annoyed when he chose to use the pejorative term instead of the historically correct framing um maybe the answer is to have a conversation with him and like okay like let's let's really dig into this and like you, okay you coined the term monolith versus modular so like okay let's unpack it and let's have fun with it um i think that'd be fun i don't get the sense he would opt into it but uh <laughs> would be pretty fun to do so um while we're on that topic actually so the 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 tribalism that you kind of you know the bag holder syndrome let's call it 
to, to label it. it. It clearly plays a pretty big role here, uh, but it could also be used to bootstrap communities, right? Uh, token incentivized communities, which which is something you're very big on. So in, in that regard, it's, it's like a double-edged sword. Like, what do you think it is? Is it a future or a bug? How, how can we best leverage it? Uh, it's definitely a superpower. It's a superpower you need to know how to wield as a developer. Um, most developers don't know how to wield the superpower well. Um, folks actually like the Ethereum Foundation. I think they don't wield it. They don't wield it particularly well or poorly. They're they kind of just treat it neutrally. Um, uh, generally, I think the term community is um, used as an excuse for lack of thinking and also used as a euphemism for or excuse for product market fit or lack thereof, depending on the context in which it presented. I generally don't think community matters as a, as a construct. Um, uh, financial incentives matter. Um, and like you can be very clear about how to think about financial incentives. I think DPIN being like a very good case study of, of where you can reason for first principles why those financial incentives should or should not work. Um, it gets a lot more nebulous with L1s and, and other types of products, though. Um, so sticking on the modularity and the financial incentives, you see this with rollups today with L2s, Arbitrum Optimism and doing airdrops, and that's how they're getting users and high TVLs. Um, I know you've had a lot of comments on rollups in the past. What What is your bear case on rollups or, or has it changed? Um, I mean, I'm not opposed to, to the concept of them. They, they, I mean, look, they can exist, kind of therefore they will exist, like these are permissionless systems. Uh, I think the right question is like, what is the right configuration of them? Uh, and I think it's kind of like, i say the Ethereum community is like hammer, everything is therefore nail. Um, is, is a I, like, I have a pretty high conviction that statement that that's correct. Um, and it turns out maybe like 5% of the things that people think are nails are, are actually nails is like probably correct. Maybe it's even under 5%. Uh, so they'll be out there. Uh, I mean, look, like at the limit, if you really push a system like Solana or like Fire Dancer, um, do you, what really is the bottleneck at, at scale? Is it data or is it compute? Uh, I've had different... I've gone back and forth with this on different people and, and depending on which benchmarks you use, you, you get the different answers. My conclusion is I don't know. Um, I actually, I don't particularly care because um, the correct answer is uh, Moore's Law and Nielsen's Law uh, and don't, don't think so hard. Um, uh, but assuming the answer is compute, then you could get gains in total system efficiency by doing sep by separating execution from uh, from DA um so like we'll see if you know that that matters for scaling total system throughput i'm i'm pretty skeptical that 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 delta matters but potentially is a thing uh and then maybe there are some developers like maybe people come up with cool use cases that are still unclear um you know the most interesting use case for being in your own chain is uh a derivatives dex um I, I, you know, people, the idea of app chains is not new. Obviously, Cosmos and, and Polkadot were the kind of two first people to push it hard. And I've spoken, you know, kind of every 12 months or so for the last six years, I've checked in with the Cosmos and the Polkadot people and been like, hey, like, what are the cool app chains? Like, what, what, you're, you're telling me it's customizable. So, like, what, what are people customizing? Right. Uh, 
and, and the only answer I've I've ever received that I think is even plausibly good is derivatives decks. Uh and and that's because dexes have a very specific set of parameters or tr properties rather that are unique, which is obviously they are money. I mean, that's where all the money is being made and, and lost. Obviously, you have HFT and latency and all that other shit. Um, and then specifically in the context of derivatives, it's particularly sensitive. Um, you know, if people pay 150 bips on Coinbase, um, it's hard to argue that retail cares about spreads. Uh, and like you can make a de like a DEX work with 50 basis point spreads. It's just like it's just not a problem. Derivatives are a little different, though, because the people who trade derivatives are a lot more sensitive to those things. Um, they're also sensitive to the Oracle and to the collateral management. Like it's just a, you know, like a hundred X higher bar in terms of like median amounts of caring about quality of execution um, in a derivatives DEX versus a spot DEX. And so there is a case to be made that by doing latency optimizations, primarily by centralizing the sequencer um, or, or pseudo centralizing the sequencer, you can, you know, deliver a Oracle plus collateral management plus latency set of optimizations that are impossible to do in a permissionless uh, open system. Uh, and therefore, that is the right way to unlock, you know, derivatives decks. Um, th that is like a fundamentally viable theory. Uh, it has not yet been proven or disproven in either direction. Uh, I am of the belief that you can do it on a permissionless system. I, I think the Without question, you can get optimizations on a system like DYDX or say that are not plausible on Solana. No questions asked. You can get to better performance. Uh, I am not particularly convinced that the marginal, basically, performance gains you get and spread reductions you get uh, are like what are going to matter. But there's a chance I'm wrong there. Beyond that, I haven't seen any apps that like have been pitched that I'm like actually derive, uh, explain from first principles like why you, you need to be in a new place. Um, I, I, I think a large part of the, the challenge in this discourse is that like the point of blockchains is shared state, uh, and, and like sh shared state should be kind of interpreted as broadly as possible shared between applications, shared between users. Um, and, and this it kind of derives from like the core atomic unit of what, what do you do on a blockchain, which is like, I have five coins and I send you five coins. And so my balance goes down by five and your balance goes up by five and like, the fact that, that that delta of five is enforced uh, is the point of a chain. Uh, whether the denomination is an NFT of N of one or whether the denomination is N of a billion doesn't really matter. Like that, that's the core thing that these systems are enforcing. Um, and, and so the idea of app chains always struck me as wrong. I was like, not that there aren't apps and not that those apps can't be fairly isolated in terms of the types of states changes that they are doing. But it's like the point of these systems is that they're about shared states. And as long as you have parallelism per unit of state, then like what are you getting by going to a different, a different, you know, asset ledger? Like I just I, I don't understand what you're gaining. Um, derivatives decks being the very notable, interesting uh, thing that is is TBD. And look, I, maybe there are other things that are going to emerge that I'm, I'm you know, uh, not creative enough or just haven't seen yet because it's too early. But uh, I, I, it's not obvious what those classes of apps are. Like, that's mm. for sure. It's, it's definitely not obvious.
I want to tie two of your ideas together, which are really about composability. I tweeted like December 2021, I think, that 2022 was going to be the year of composability. And then you um, later tweeted talking about sequencers and how Ethereum, the consensus has kind of shifted from we're going to decentralize our sequencers to we're going to have shared sequencers. And with doing that, they're saying, okay, we're actually looking for atomic composability instead of censorship resistance. Um, I'm curious, do you think, one, how important do you think atomic composability is? Um, sounds like... Uh, you're pretty bullish on that. You think it's a big deal. And then two, do you think that's the right trade-off that uh, L2 should be taking right now? Uh, I think atomic composability is n not that interesting. Um, even though my name is Composability Kyle on Twitter and has <laughs> been for two and a half years. Uh, I, I think atomic composability is... Uh, atomic composability is useful for... Uh, actually, by definition, the only class of user it is useful for are arbitrage bots. Um and they kind of define that broadly, whether it's Dex arbitrage or some flash loan, whatever, whatever. Uh, but, but that's not who you should design the system around. Um, the system should be designed for re retail, maximizing developer ease and maximizing retail access and minimizing retail gas fees uh, and latency. Uh, uh, atomic composability is, is intellectually cool, though. Uh, when I, I talk about composability, I, I think of it really more broadly in the context of like, hey, uh, one of the problems in all of these crypto systems is that like they are mostly heterogeneous above the asset ledger. So like, okay, you've got Solana or you've got Ethel one and like that is a logically consistent global homogenous construct. And like everyone understands what the rules of those systems are and what the code is and right like it's the magical asset ledger in the sky and it updates uh but then everything else above that is heterogeneous um the exchanges the wallets the indexing and query providers like the fiat on ramps the currencies that you trade to get in the geographic rules and regulations like everything above the l1 is heterogeneous um and making all of those things work together uh, across any arbitrary configuration of, of software and users uh, is pretty comp pretty complicated. It turns out that if you everyone's using the same L1, just a lot of those problems like get solved kind of naturally-ish. Um, and basically, the L1 becomes a standard to which all of those other people conform themselves. Uh, and when you start breaking up into lots of small pieces, you have to get all of those players to reconform themselves around these different configurations of things and the more configurations of things there are the more total system complexity there is um and and so when i talk about composability it's, it's not so much about atomic transactions and flash loans it's about just like as a developer knowing you can like build a thing throw it on the standard which you know is ethel one or, or solana for the purposes of this discussion and just know that everything, all the wallets will read and write from it correctly. All the exchanges will interface with it correctly. Uh, whatever else, like you, you just know is, is conforming to that standard. Um, and so you get the, the maximum iteration of, of uh, compounding in terms of developers and users instead of thinking about bridges and liquidity and on ramps and like all this other, all this other stuff. So two questions there. One is you, you said that, in your view, at least, the point of these systems is essentially single globally shared state. I think probably I, I agree with that, but I'm not sure if everybody would. So I'm curious to see, like for people who just aren't familiar with this concept, why is that the point of these systems? I mean, 
uh, th there are two kinds of, of so software in the world, uh, abundance software and scarcity software. Um, the vast majority of, uh, of software you use in the world is abundance software. Uh, like there's an infinite number of video streams, there's an infinite number of tweets, an infinite number of Telegram messages and Gmail messages and whatever. You can always create more content and just keep adding more and more and more and more and more. And that like the point of those systems is they just, everything grows towards infinity. Uh, and then there is scarcity centric software, which, which is basically just the realm of money and finance, um, which is like, I have $5 and I hand you $5. And so now my balance of dollars is down by five and your balance is up by five. And something somewhere in the world needs to count the fact that I am down by five and you are up by five. Uh, and obviously this applies for money, for asset, just asset. I mean, this just applies for assets, um, whether they're commodities, bonds, equities, whatever, it doesn't matter. Uh, and, and like, block, like blockchains are I, I, the kind of generic term I use for them across L1s and L2s is asset ledgers because they're just ledgers keeping track of who owns which coins. Like that's really all they're doing, whether those coins are NFTs or whether they're fungible, that doesn't matter. That's the, that's what they do. Um, and so like, if you kind of take that to its logical extreme, the kind of obvious endpoint would be like, well, wouldn't it be nice if in the world there was just one asset ledger and like kept track of every, you know, like what everyone owned, like that, that's kind of the logical endpoint. Um, now there are political reasons why that won't be the case. And then, uh, perhaps technical reasons, um, as well, but like, that's kind of the, clearly like the, the cleanest construction of the world is just one asset ledger that enforces those rules. I think you can get a lot more scale out of a single asset ledger than people appreciate uh, while still enforcing these social properties of blockchains in terms of Nakamoto coefficients as well as number of replicas and validations. Um, I don't believe you need to validate these systems on a $200 computer at home. That's a very different thing to optimize for, which in my opinion is superfluous. Uh, but like, it's just, I mean, what's nice about physics in the real world is like, we have a common set of rules in physics which is like, I have a green piece of paper and I hand you the piece of paper. And physics enforces that that green piece of paper has not replicated into two pieces of paper, right? And like that set of rules governs everything in meat space. Um, wouldn't it be nice if we could have the digital equivalent? <laughs> one set of rules, or in this case, one asset ledger that enforces all notions of asset ownership around the world. Hey everyone, we'll get back to Empire in just a minute. But before we do that, I wanna let you know that we have permissionless coming up. Permissionless is big conference that Blockworks and Bankless put on together. It is the biggest, the best DeFi conference in crypto. This year it is in Austin, Texas, September 11th through 13th. If you've been in crypto for a while, you know that bear market conferences are the best kind of conferences. We have a phenomenal lineup of speakers. A lot of the guests that you hear on Empire are both going to be speaking there. You will have the opportunity to meet them there and a lot of the topics that we cover on Empire, ZK Tech, Rollups, Account Abstraction, MEV, AppChain Thesis, a lot of that kind of stuff that will all be discussed at Permissionless this year. So because you are a listener of Empire, you get a special discount. That's right, Santi and I negotiated with our marketing team. You get 30% off if you go to blockworks.com forward slash permissionless. Empire 30 is going to get you 30% off your ticket Today, when I'm recording this, that's about $300 off your ticket. So type in Empire 30 when buying your permissionless ticket, you get about 300 bucks off. 
click the link at the bottom of this episode. It's in the show notes. Do it quickly because prices go up all the time. And if you are going to Permissionless, hit me up, let me know, shoot me a DM on Twitter. I would love to meet up with you there. What is Solana's moat against other highly performant blockchains like Sui, Modad, um, other L2s that I just said, you know, that are experimenting with LVMs? Like what is a moat in crypto when it comes to these L1s? Because at some point you would think that the tech might become a commodity. Uh, the state is the moat. Uh, well, oh, sorry, two things. It's the state and then it's the integrations to the state. Um, obviously, if the code's open source, that's not a moat. Uh, so what is the state? Uh, well, the state is who has how many coins. And so the more people who have more coins, like that is state. Um, and then there's not all forms of state are fungible for the purposes of the question you're asking. For example, an LP position in a in a AMM pool is different than just like passively owning coins because that LP pool position is providing liquidity to, to other people to, to do stuff. Um, but but like the, the broad answer to your question is state. Uh, and then the second part of that, which is important, is how many places are reading and writing from that state. Um, and, and so that kind of means like on ramps, applications that are, you know, like uh, Hive Mapper or whatever, Helium, like those things are theoretical demand drivers to create a lot more state um, on on Solana. Uh, I think most people in crypto uh, overvalue the total amount of state on all of these systems today uh, by several orders of magnitude. Um, and it's very hard for them to comprehend that like there is a world in which a asset ledger is like actually running at 50,000 TPS of demand and like all of that stuff is happening around the world. Uh, and that is like, if you compare that to what exists in crypto today, like that is actually a thousand times, like a hundred to a thousand times larger than what we have now. And it's very hard for people to, to grasp uh, what that state of the world looks like. Because I think that state of the world has very little to do with the current state of the world other than maybe some weird path dependency. I mean, there's some path dependency, obviously, but like, that state of the world is very far away from the current one. And, and so I, I wouldn't overly uh, pr project the status quo to that future state. Yeah. And, and when you talk about state, how big of a deal do you think real world assets are? Like you see Solana making a push with um, the Saga phone. Like that's almost, to me, it looks like Amazon who started off their just e-commerce, but they're almost building moats by having physical infrastructure that's actually hard to compete against. Like, do you think... I guess one, I'm curious what you think about the Solana like mobile push and how important that is. But two, just real world assets in general, because to me that that might seem like a, another part of state that would be a big moat. Um, uh, I'm I'm very excited about Solana Mobile. Um, I I own a, a Saga phone. Nice uh, here. Um, uh, I don't think Saga will sell in very large numbers, and I never expected it to. Um, what's interesting about Saga is SMS or the Solana mobile stack, um, which is free and open source and available to any Android OEM. Uh, and the, the hope always has been from day one is get other phone manufacturers to implement SMS. Um, if it doesn't cost them anything, then the bar for implementation is not that high. Uh, why might those people implement SMS? Uh, that's the question that, that needs to be answered, but like it, like roughly speaking uh should be those phone manufacturers i think they can generate some revenue so if you have some sort of app store rev share 
uh, from the from the DAP store back to the OEMs. Um, that's a revenue driver for them. And so the question from there is, well, are there apps from those app stores that are generating any revenue that can be shared back to the OEMs? Uh, so far, the answer to that question is there are clearly plays, DEXs and NFT exchanges um, that obviously have trading fees that you could imagine flow back. None of that's happening today, but I don't think it's very hard to get to that world. I think if you went to Magic Eden and Tensor and said, Will you take X percent of your trading fees and send them back to Samsung or whoever if you know that they're sending you that that traffic? I think they would all say yes in a heartbeat. So I, I'm not too worried about the meat-based negotiations there. Um, so the, the bet is, you know, you can figure out a way to help these guys drive revenue from, from the apps. Um, Apple and Google have chokeholds on their respective app stores, and the Android OEMs hate that and have, have tried many times to get around that and have unilaterally failed. And so if you can have a new class of apps that by definition will not exist and work in the old model and they can give some sort of rev share back, that's pretty interesting. Um, I'd say I'm fairly optimistic that you know within a few years you'll see some major Android OEMs uh, adopt SMS. Uh, it doesn't cost them much to do it and, and it's, a, you know, it's basically for them a, a close to free call option. Um, and so that that's kind of the big opportunity there is distribution via o OEMs. So while we're on the topic of real world assets or or the real world or as you call it meat space, um, I want to talk about Deepin, decentralized physical infrastructure networks. You are obviously one of the leading thinkers on this entire vertical, I would say. So uh, actually, before we get into that, I think a lot of people when I talk about this on Twitter don't actually even know what it is. So can you just briefly explain what Deepin is in your own words and why it's important? Yeah, stands for decentralized physical infrastructure networks. The the term was coined by by the folks over at Masari. Uh, there are like broadly speaking two classes of DPIN networks. There are ones that are uh, GPS dependent, uh, and then there are like server networks, which are kind of GPS dependent but not really. Um, so the simple way to contrast that would be like Filecoin versus HiveMapper. I'm assuming if you're listening to this, you know what Filecoin is. It's Airbnb for your hard drive, in very simple terms. Uh, and like, you know, latency to get around the planet Earth uh, is roughly 100 milliseconds, 130 milliseconds to do one lap around the Earth at the diameter. Um, so for like most applications, like, you know, whether you're in New York or Chicago, like doesn't matter. Um, there are some class of application in which that does, but for the mo most part, it doesn't. Uh, and because uh, human perception just can't perceive five millisecond kind of increments, again, for the most part. Um, when you talk about uh, HiveMapper, let's contrast, let's say Filecoin with HiveMapper. Uh, like Google has several thousand cars today that drive around the world and capture pictures of the roads. Um, and they use that to update their maps. Not only the shape of the roads, but more importantly, where all of the, speed, the stop signs are and the red lights and the speed limit signs and the yield signs and the lane markings and all that stuff. Um, and it's, having the shape of the road alone is not really enough to have a useful app. You, you kind of need to have all these other things to have a useful app. Um, wouldn't it make sense if everyone driving around the roads was just capturing that information and sharing it back and creating a, a global database uh, of a map? Uh, and so that's what HiveMapper is. Uh, in HiveMapper, you buy a dash cam, you put it uh, literally under your rearview mirror in your car, you drive around, it captures you know, images and stuff. Uh, sends those up to their servers, and then they process it, and they do AI to, to, to detect the speed limit and the yield signs and lane markings, all that stuff. Uh, 
and then uh, create a, a global map that's uh, you know bottoms up from from the people. There's like roughly fifteen thousand people who've um, set up a dash cam in their car now. They've mapped roughly four million road kilometers. Uh, there are about sixty million road kilometers in the world. So call it seven eight percent seven percent or so of, of road kilometers have have been mapped so far um, in about mm, eight months, right? Um, so uh, pretty impressive overall. Google for context is estimated to have about 20 million road kilometers. Uh, so they're 20, you know, one fifth the size of Google um, on obviously one one millionth the budget. Uh, um, so like what what is DPIN? Sorry, back to the original question. Uh, the, there's two classes. There's the server tile class of app, which is the file coin render kind of a thing. Uh, and then there is the Helium Hive Mapper kind of a thing, which is very GPS dependent. Obviously, having a picture of Madison Avenue, New York, is not equivalent to having a picture of uh, Congress in, in Austin. Um, so you need to you know get those things differently. Um, we spend a lot of uh, MultiCoin is very likely the largest investor in both categories of apps as a function of dollars, um, and perhaps also as a function of number of names as well. Um, so yeah, we're, we've been doing it for a while. Cal, can you touch on? Um why you think it's important that maybe these behaviors that these projects are locking into are passive versus active. And that's talking about, for example, drivers that are already driving. Yeah. Um, the only way to make these D5, these D pin systems work for, for the, uh, is like, you, you need to have some sort of cost, structural cost advantage versus Google or versus, uh, in the case of, let's say AWS, Amazon, um, or in the case of helium versus Verizon and, and AT&T and T-Mobile. And like, by far, the easiest source of structural cost advantage is if a consumer was going to buy that hardware for some sort of personal consumption use case, and then they can repurpose that hardware to make it an income generating asset. Um, the opportunity cost for those people, like they were, those consumers were otherwise going to assume zero dollars of revenue generation from whatever the, the device was or, or service was uh, or time investment was. And now that number can be larger than zero. Um, if Amazon is buying a GPU, like they are underwriting that saying, we're buying this GPU for whatever, $1,000, we expect to make whatever, $10 an hour. I'm just making these numbers up, right? Therefore, after, you know, five months, we'll break even. Um, uh, consumers are not running that math and are not that uh, cost of capital sensitive. So there's a real structural source of cost advantage. In order to take advantage of that, you basically need to be able to have consumers passively offer uh, or uh, whatever the thing is. So in the case of Hive Mapper, it's like someone's paying people to sit in a Google car and drive that Google car around. Um, but if you're driving from home to work, like obviously that's that's free. Uh, in the case of Helium, it's you're paying for your your internet line at your house. Um, and so if you want to be able to resell that bandwidth, um, you can put up a hotspot in your window and then resell that bandwidth. By the way, I actually um, just coincidentally, I actually have a Hive Mapper camera right here with me. So just in sweet. case people are interested, it's just I have one right here. It's Love a it. Sweet device. Um, and the cool thing is, like as a developer, you can actually plug into the APIs and kind of, you know, build whatever you want with the maps and, and contribute to the ecosystem as well. Um, I do want to. So I asked this question to you, I believe, on Twitter before, but I want to ask you here, just so everybody's aware. And at first, I was a little skeptical because I figured, okay why do you actually need blockchains or crypto for this, right? Can't you just pay the consumers or whatever, the passive 
uh, agents of the system, let's say, with, with non-crypto means. And I think you had an answer to this. I believe it might um, involve like the cold start problem. So can you touch on why crypto uniquely enables this? Yeah. Um, actually, I wrote a blog post about this in December of last year. Uh, it's on the Multicoin blog post. I think it's called Crypto Payment Flows or something like that. If you also want to throw that in the show notes. Um, but uh, to, to kind of recap that here, um, one, you generally need micropayments for these systems to work. Um, when you're talking about people permissionlessly putting up their stuff, when they're spending their own electricity um, for these things, uh, they need to be comped in not real time, but like something approximating real time. Uh, in the most generous answer, that's kind of 24 hours. And other answers, it's like every hour or something. Um, and there's kind of different technical machinations to make that work in a trust-minimized way. But you need to have lots of micropayments. And obviously, if, if you expect the supply side of these networks to be coming from hundreds of thousands or millions of people all over the world in very small denominations across many currencies and countries and geographies and banking systems, then like the only answer is blockchain. Um, so that that's quite important. And we, we see this already today with both Helium and HiveMapper. They're the probably two most at scale um, people who will tell you like from first principles and experience why that, that's paramount for their respective use cases. Um, and, and the other one, and this one's actually less obvious, but, but arguably more important, um, is about incentives. Uh, um, if you are an Uber driver, uh, like people talk about decentralized Uber and like what if the drivers had a stock in Uber for driving? Um, there's the, the, there's the, that kind of class of commentary is not wrong, but it, but it misses a more important subtle thing that that is very distinct in Helium and Hive Mapper. Um, so in, in Uber, if like you're a driver and like let's say you're the only driver just for simplicity, and like a, a, a person downloads the app and opens the app and like calls you, you know, and you, you go pick them up, like well, you, you are getting paid dollars for performing that job right um uh and like and therefore the the demand side of the network meaning the rider is is happy because they got the ride and the driver is happy because they got paid for providing the ride right and like it, that's pretty straightforward um but other classes of the services require a minimum level of scale in order to function so um let's take helium or hive map these are perfect examples um if you have a map of 500 road kilometers on Hive Mapper, and, and let's assume you have like the most perfect map conceivable, uh, whatever that means. Just imagine it's absolutely perfect. Um, what is that worth? And the answer is is not uh, Google Maps. Five five hundred divided by 20, 20 million, which is what Google Maps has, or or five sixty million, which is the number of roads in the world. Um, uh, would, would be kind of the like very crude way to try and approximate the value, so, so to speak. Um, the value of those 500 road kilometers is zero. Uh, and it's zero because there is no customer that cares about 500 road kilometers. It's simply too small of a number for anyone to bother to get out of bed and care. Um, it is unclear, obviously, what the minimum threshold is by which any given customer cares. I can tell you definitively 500 is too small for anyone to care about anything. Um, maybe the answer is at a million kilometers, people start caring. Maybe the answer is five million kilometers. I mean, whatever. There's obviously different thresholds for different kinds of apps. But the point is, is you need a there is some pretty high minimum threshold that's required for the system to work at all. Uh, the same is true for telecom networks. Um, 
a telecom, a helium network with 500 nodes is worth zero because it's just not large enough for anyone to care. Um, a helium, a, a telecom network with a million nodes is now worth something more than zero uh, because you've, you've achieved that minimal level of scale. What does this have to do with tokens and blockchains? Um, you need a way to incentivize people for being early. The guy who installed the first helium hotspot took on risk that the helium network as a whole was never going to achieve a level of scale to where anyone would bother to use it at all. That guy who that guy took more risk, hotspot owner number one, than hotspot owner number three hundred thousand. Because if you're at number three hundred thousand, you you may not know hey what's the threshold at which the network is useful or not, but clearly it's a much higher probability that it will achieve that threshold at number three hundred thousand than at number one, right? And like that is the the purest definition of risk, uh, and therefore the earliest contributors to the network should be compensated for taking that risk. Um, and like the simple way to compensate them is with more tokens. And there's different, obviously, uh, mechanisms you can use for distributing tokens, uh, miles driven, hours providing service, cover, I mean, whatever. There's, those machinations vary by, by network type. Um, uh, but like you need to reward the people who took the most risk. Uh, and tokens do that very elegantly. Uh, in the case of networks like uh, render, um, which is about GPUs for uh, machine learning workloads, um, there's another element to this that that's pretty poorly misunderstood, which is that uh, machine learning work machine learning workloads and tend to be fairly lumpy. Uh, it's like someone shows up and is like, "I have a job, like I need whatever a thousand you know GPU hours to, to do the job." Uh, but then they finish the job and they go away. Maybe they'll come back in a month with another thousand job. But like they're not telling you, I need you know 10, 10 GPU hours per hour for the next three months. Um, they tend to come in these very lumpy spikes. Now, as N becomes sufficiently large network wide, that all just evens itself out, and it's fine. It doesn't matter. And you can just you know you can model these things as as being nice smooth curves. But in the early days of a network, those those spikes are a huge problem. Um, and you can't model them as as being a smooth curve. Uh, and so you need to have way more supply than there is demand in order to get the network off the ground because no demand is going to show up if there's no supply. Uh, and so uh, how do you how do you incent, how do you compensate the supply for showing up even when there is no demand? Um, and again, tokens are a very elegant answer to the question um, is you could actually compensate the early suppliers uh, in that in that way. And I believe that is like fundamentally justified in terms of building out the long term network value uh, of of the system. What do you think about the arguments sticking with render and GPU? Um, I've heard from some people say, you know, GPUs are not fungible. And also a lot of the compute is going to be done at the edge. So like on your actual local device and people point to things like Facebook and open sourcing their models and you could actually run that device potentially in the future. What do you think about that? Um, yeah, I have, I have pretty high, high conviction views here uh, that this is like as perfect middle of the IQ curve as is possible um, of, of a take. Um, when demand for a service goes up 100x, 1000x over, call it a period of a handful of years, which is pretty clearly what's happening right now for just flops, uh, which is like loosely defined, uh, it's very stupid to be like, well, this configuration of flops is not going to be able to service any of it, but this other configuration of flops will, be, will only be able to service it. Uh, and that's just obviously very stupid. Um, the, 
uh, amount of time it takes to build a new fab is like five, six years with God knows how much billion dollars of capital investments. Um, but like demand is up 10x in the last six months and fab capacity is up 0x in the last six months. And so like what that means is all available software is going to slowly reconfigure itself to all available hardware. Um, and the hardware itself will become more heterogeneous and is distributed in whatever ways it's distributed. And the software will configure itself around that so that you can attempt to try and get the, the markets to be as efficient as possible. Um, the kind of classic debate, actually, this this reminds me of, and I put out a tweet about this a while ago, uh, was in the early 2000s, uh, as kind of businesses started to, to meaningfully uh, adopt uh, computers that, for kind of white-collar office workers, and like intranets were a big thing. There was a big discussion of uh, thin clients versus thick client rollouts. And the, the thin client view was that like all you need at the desk is a keyboard, a mouse, and a monitor, and everything else can be living on the server. Uh, and the thick client view was no, like performance matters and people care about the experience, and you're going to have enough applications open that this, you're not going to be able to have a server big enough and whatever. And it turns out both of those views were stupid because the answer was demand for total computational resources was, was effectively infinity and continues to grow towards infinity. And you there just need as much chips and as much storage and as much RAM as possible in like all configurations. And it was just like a stupid debate to begin with. Um, and I look at this in the exact same way. All configurations of uh, machine learning systems uh, will exist. Uh, there will be stuff running locally in a privacy sensor manner. There will be stuff running on render. There will be stuff running on whatever other render competitor. And there will be stuff running in Amazon. Uh, and all none of these will kill the others. They have different trade-offs, and different people will be optimizing for different things. So while we're on the topic of hardware and meat space, a lot of people actually don't know that you have a pretty comprehensive background in AR and VR. And when the Apple Vision Pro came out, you had a really good thread, which I enjoyed. And I want to take this moment to maybe explore your thoughts on this new paradigm of spatial computing. And if you think it has any weight whatsoever or tie in with crypto and the metaverse. The theory of crypto and metaverse being tied to each other doesn't have to do strictly with, with glasses or goggles. Um, but the theory is, you know, if you spend more time in some sort of 3D virtual space uh, with people and presumably NPCs running around doing things, those systems will have economies. And if the systems have economies, then the question is what rails do they run on? And like loosely speaking, there's kind of three answers to that. One is uh, inside of a com central company. Two is through the banking system. Uh, and three is crypto rails. Um, and of those, the one that I find to be most elegant and palatable is crypto rails. But I'm a fairly biased party. So we'll see if that actually plays out. Um, obviously, there are some people who tend to believe that will be the case today. Look at kind of MMOs like EVE Online and Star Atlas and some others that are, are kind of moving in this direction but still super early and can't really say anything with conviction. Um, the, the relevance of all of that to Apple and um, to Oculus is like, you, you know, is that 3D virtual world experience so much more immersive and compelling in the uh, goggles form, form factor such that you induce people to spend more time there, which therefore basically helps grow that economy because if, presumably if there's more time spent, then presumably more dollars will flow through those rails. 
And talking about VR, I think you know the two competitors right now that are out there are Apple and and Facebook or Meta. Um, Apple Vision Pro focuses more on like the personal computing experience, like productivity and home entertainment. And then you have Quest, which is more social and gaming. Um, how do you feel about those two? Because there's that quote that says like come for the come for the tool, stay for the network. Curious, which one do you think is the right way to go about it here? With form factors, it's a very hard problem to uh, build adoption. Uh, and it's a, and it's a thing Apple has a lot of experience with, both the desktop layer as well as the phone layer, uh, and then and then the watch layer, and now um, uh, you know the, the goggles layer or goggles form factor, I should say. Um, but the most instructive example for the purposes of goggles is desktops. So we got to go back to 1980 here. Uh, and in 1980, no one was like, I mean. Yeah, maybe Bill Gates and Steve Jobs were like, it's going to be so cool for games. And like, I don't know, they got a Pong demo and they were like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Uh, but like, I think they've all recognized that like the first applications were going to be business applications. And they realized that because once they understood like this could be a lot of white collar office jobs could be made dramatically more productive. Those people, those com those companies would be willing to pay for the hardware and network infrastructure to get them set up and to train their people. Um, and obviously a lot of those early employees were skeptical. They were like, what the fuck is this? And this is dumb. And I don't want to look at the screen and my eyes hurt. And I don't know how to type. And I mean, like there was a lot of friction that like had to be overcome, you know, in 1980 for all this stuff to happen that we all take for granted now. Uh, and, uh, but they did it because the productivity gains were incredible. Uh, I mean, and like, imagine building Excel models without Excel. Like, I've literally never done that in my life because I'm I'm young. I'm 33. I'm like young enough that I didn't never do that. But I actually cannot comprehend how to like do financial modeling without Excel. <laughs> like it doesn't it doesn't make sense to me. Or like how to write documents without Word. Like I don't I don't I don't know what to do. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and and so that those are incredible productivity games. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so I think that's, that's the kind of important takeaway is like, in order to bootstrap the form factor of desktop, you needed to identify the two and like the two use cases were documents and Excel and then kind of email, which is kind of both of those things. PowerPoint is like actually a hundred X less important. Um, but like the first app was a VisiCalc and the second app was word processing. Those are the things that mattered. Uh, and everything else was a rounding error. Um, and for phones, actually Apple funny enough, didn't experience this problem at all because everyone universally understood that the most important application of phones was first phone calls and then later SMS, but like getting call, getting in touch with your, your family and your friends. And that was universally understood and there was no question about that, right? Um, and the criticism of the iPhone was not, it doesn't make phone, I mean, there was a lot of jokes that like the phone calls aren't great, but like everyone understood it made phone calls and like the question was, are, are apps useful and you know, the price point and all that, those other things. But it wasn't hard to get adoption because Everyone understood, like, call your mom. Um, and then if you look at the watch, Apple had a bunch of theories of, uh, if you if you go watch the first um, watch keynote, uh, they lean hard into apps. And if you then look at the subsequent three keynotes, you can just see them slowly positioning away from third-party apps to basically health and fitness. Um, and to a much lesser extent, like fashion design statement. Um, and they realized that like this thing has one function, which is health and fitness. 
and Apple is now in insourcing all of that into into the watch, and they've just been iterating on that now for for many years. Um, but it took them a while to figure that out. Um, so when I, now getting to the to the goggles or to Vision Pro, uh, the question is like, what's the what's the use case that justifies the new form factor? Which like, and again, this form like no one was like, man, iPhone bad. Like it's bigger than my Nokia brick. It's not going to fit in my pocket. Like no one really said that. No one had a problem with the watch form factor when the watch came out. But the form factor people complained about was desktops in 1980. And like, there's so many great articles of being, people being like, workers aren't going to stare at this green, ugly screen all day. And I mean, you know, shit like that. And obviously now the equivalent article is no one's going to wear these damn goggles all day. Um, and obviously there's lots of people who, who kind of think that. So Apple understands in order to overcome those uh, criticisms, you need to have a productivity gain that is so large that like all of those criticisms are irrelevant. Uh, and that's what Vision Pro seems to be optimized for in the workplace. And that's why they're leaning into their strength of saying uh, we're, it's backwards compatibility with basically all Mac OS apps. And it's basically just the world's greatest monitor, like is, is basically the, the right way to think about it. Um, and obviously certain you know designers and architects and I don't know, whatever, graphic design, I don't know. Like clearly that class of person is going to be the first adopter of this product who's going to wear it for many hours per day. Uh, and then like the question from there is how do you expand, you know, from there into others? That's uh, quite unclear at this stage, but certainly step one at this point is fairly obvious. Um, the other bet that Apple's making is just like, again, it's the best TV screen you've ever had. And so they're going to try and, you know, create some very compelling content experiences at home with 3D entertainment from like the courtside shots at the NBA and, you know, getting Disney on board to make some, some stuff. We'll see if any of that is any good. Uh, or, 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 you know, uh, what's it called? Entices consumers. But like that, that, those are the bets they're making is just like the hyper premium experience for the person who demands the best. Uh, and then try and come down market from there. Uh, I have more conviction on the workplace side of that, at least for step one, than I do of the consumer side of the stat. But I, I haven't worn the things and seen the consumer experiences. So who knows? F Facebook is taking the opposite approach saying like, hey, can we deliver something that you want to play a fun game and then we'll try and make it social? kind of roughly seems to be the the Facebook theory. Um, I don't have particularly views of like how well it's working or not. Uh, there's a fair bit of negativity in kind of the mainstream press that like it's not working. Um, I think it's, I assume it's unfair because the press tends to uh, hate on things they don't understand. Uh, but anecdotally, my views, I guess, align with what the press says, but I don't actually know what the data, data says, so I'm clear. So I'm going to pivot topics here while we're short on time. You are obviously a very big proponent and advocate for first principles thinking and just being a contrarian being right. Crypto Twitter is a very interesting place dominated by discourse of groupthink and let's say peer pressure, but really it's just groupthink. How do you, so I have two questions. One is how do you cultivate such a contrarian and first principles thinking approach to crypto? Especially, you know, Twitter is very infamous for being very critical of contrarian folks. And two, if you could use that thinking, that first principles approach, what is the one product or service you would build in crypto that nobody's building? Uh, I disagree with the framing of contrarian. Uh, I think it is not a useful way to think about people or the world. Um, what is useful is first principles thinking. Um, and I do my best to be first principles uh, in my thinking. Uh, I think the I don't know how to cultivate that 
other than try and do it. Uh, I love it. I mean, like, <laughs> like, and then, and then, like, you know, ask anyone who's been on our investment. You know, ask Spencer, ask Shion, ask Vishal. They've been on the investment team for for quite some time. Ask even the people who listen into our investment team calls who aren't on the team, like our CFO and our GC and, and others who you know listen in. And what they'll tell you is like enough people have argued with me enough about enough shit that they have come to realize that they were not thinking for first principles and like that has rewired their brain. So one path to getting there is argue with Kyle enough um, and Tushar and, and others. Um, uh, so that that seems to work on very small scale. Uh, I don't know how to engender it on a larger scale. It, it seems kind of sociologically impossible given my understanding of like br broad information flows and human biases uh, via low fidelity communication channels. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know what the answer is, unfortunately. That, that was part of the question. What was the second part of the question? The second is if you could build one product that nobody else is building, what would it be? What is everybody missing? Uh, hmm. I mean, this isn't, this is kind of a non-answer, but, uh, figure, figure out how to imbue some notion of financialization into a mainstream consumer behavior. Uh, or, or like to go kind of the uh, crude way of saying it would be decentralized social, uh, which I think is mostly counterproductive term. Uh, but like, uh, I I think it's very important for crypto as a whole to have at least one app that is like fundamentally social in nature that like my mom will understand what it is and why people use it, even if she does not want to use it on her own. And that it is like, you know, universally accessible and understandable very quickly. Um, and that embeds some notion of financialization. Uh, that, that to me is the most important thing. Obviously, many people today are running experiments on how to achieve that from Farcaster to Drip to Dialect to a bunch of other people. Uh, and we've, we've, we talk with a lot of these guys. We're investors in a handful of them uh, and are continuing to try and refine our thinking uh, on the, the paths to get there. But like that to me at, at the ecosystem level, it's not a question is like the single most important thing that could happen. Cause once you have a Senator and you have a Congressman and they're like their kids use it, like it, the discourse completely changes. But you have a take on ZK that a lot of people don't talk about and ZK is used for privacy, um, and proof of computational integrity. And I'm curious if you think, something with that's going to be one of the next big apps or is going to be leveraged for the next big app. And and maybe you can go into the FHE, uh, introduce that to people as well. Uh, I'm fairly certain that any large scale consumer app in the near term, the, the first handful of them to the extent they exist, will almost certainly not use ZK uh, just because the technical complexities of introducing ZK are just so large and you just like, you can't iterate quickly and do product experimentation and just like, it, 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 ZK is given sheer technical complexity, basically antithetical to like consumer product building. Um, now that that's like mathematically true, um, it's just practically true because of like how building consumer products works. Um, so I think it's very unlikely ZK is relevant at all to, to anything consumery. 
Um, uh, that's question one. Question two, I guess, is like, how are you thinking about ZK and, and privacy and proofs of integrity? Um, I'll comment more on the privacy side than the proof and proofs of, of computational integrity, aka scalability side. Uh, I, I'm fairly confident ZK is not the correct answer for um, privacy on chain. Um, I want to caveat that with a couple of things. Uh, if you are if you are trying to say I can prove to you that I am 21, so that you can sell me alcohol, but I'm not going to show you my my address and my driver's license. Uh, that maps to ZK extraordinarily well. I mean, that's like literally what a zero knowledge proof does is is that. Um, so if the, the goal is to preserve privacy is like proving something about yourself, that works very well. If the goal is privacy in the context of DeFi, so you you now now there's some sort of notion of shared state and there's an LP pool and uh, or limit order doesn't matter and you have people crossing the spread and you have people doing interactions and, and there's now math happening between people. Uh, I don't think that maps to ZK for privacy. Um, the fundamental reason um, is in a world in which people are submitting ZK things to a blockchain to do these kinds of, of financial transactions, there is no notion of global state. Uh, and, and therefore, if there is no notion of global state, you cannot reason about global state. Um, that was a fairly abstract statement, so let me unpack that. Um, the simplest way to understand that is to just think about Zcash. Um, in Zcash, like what does the Zcash proof say whenever, like if you submit a, uh, I think they're called Z transactions or whatever in Zcash. Uh, and, and the proofs roughly says, um, there are some series of UTXOs that have been sent to my series of private addresses in this encrypted blob, such that the total number of UTXOs I have received is less than the number of UTXOs I'm I have sent out, including the current transaction. Basically, you're just saying my balance is larger than zero, is is really all I just said. But in, in for the context of you know defining a zero knowledge proof, that that's basically what the the proof says. Um, why is it important? Why like the reason I, I spoke about it in that way is because if all of those proofs are in fact valid, then you know that there will not be more than 21 million Zcash. Um, Zcash forked Bitcoin, so it's 21 million supply schedule. Uh, but there's actually no way to audit the supply of Zcash and say, are there more than 21 million tokens? Um, this has been a known fundamental problem. I, I'm not going to call it a problem. I'm going to call it a property of this, this proof design system uh, from day one. Uh, and in fact, there was a bug circa 2019 or 2020 in which they discovered that there was a bug and someone could have been minting an unlimited number of Zcash in, in, the, in the encrypted pool. Uh, no one believes that it was taken advantage of, but it was discovered, it was patched and then disclosed afterwards by the electric coin company, um, which further highlights the fact that there was no way to audit the system from the top down. Um, and, and so coming back to DeFi, why does this matter? Well, if you can't reason about the system from the top down, then like DeFi kind of, at least DeFi as we know it right now, doesn't work. Um, if you can't reason about the system from the top down, then there is no X, Y, K. You don't know what K is, and therefore you don't know what X and Y are. You don't know how those things move along the curve. If if there's no way, way to reason about it from top down, then what is how does collateral work in Aave? Like it, it just it doesn't. And then collateral management and are you solvent and your health factor and all this stuff. Like th those concepts don't work when everyone is submitting a bunch of private proofs to the chain. Everyone knows their own view of what they think is valid, which is fine. But for DeFi, you need to also have a top-down view to work. And that, like, 
fundamentally doesn't map to a bunch of encrypted trans ZK transactions. Now, that doesn't mean it's impossible. And obviously, there's a bunch of people, Alio and Aztec and DarkFi, and there's probably a handful of other teams I'm forgetting that are really trying to enable these, these uh, you know, ZK SDKs for de private DeFi. But like, they're all dealing with this like very basic logic problem of like, how do you reason about the system? <laughs> and like, I, I cannot describe to you in finance terms how to do that, let alone then translate that into computer science and code. Um, and so I, I think that that's kind of fundamentally not going to work. Um, to me, the right way to get to ZK DeFi is just FHE or, or fully homomorphic encryption, um, which, which literally means just imagine all of the contracts as they exist today on the chain, but they're encrypted and you can just run all, apply all of the state transitions to encrypted stuff on chain and no one can, and the, the validators don't need to actually know what any of the balances are to apply the, the transitions and run the comparative if statements and such. Um, that, that to me, like, and the beauty of that system is you just, the core logic of the system is preserved. And in fact, uh, assuming you have uh, an FHE to VM, FHE either EVM or SVM, uh, you would likely be able to reuse the substantial majority of code that's already been written um, for that new for that new world. Uh, and that strikes me as like the right way to solve the problem. Yeah, that's super interesting. I think I think Mert, we can probably go into the rapid fire round as we close up. I do want to ask Kyle one one quick question. I I love your communication style. And I'm just curious, has it always been that way? Like you're very direct, um, authentic. Uh, more so than most people are. And I'm curious, like, do you intentionally do that? Has it always been that way? And like, do you encourage people at your firm to do the same? Uh, definitely encourage people at Multicoin to become more uh, direct and, and concise. And I think it happens kind of naturally over time. Uh, uh, I'd say I've mostly become this way uh, primarily because of writing. Uh, I was a substantially less clear communicator pre-writing than post-writing. Um, certainly for, and probably Ben Thompson was probably the most important, uh, figure who helped me refine my own writing. I mean, I've been, I've read every single strategy article ever written without exception from inception to today. I've never missed one article. Um, and he's had a big impact on me. Uh, and then going through your own blog posts and refining them and refining them. One thing I find that's it's very fun to do is I don't say fun. It's very painful to do is to go read your own shit from six years ago uh, and, and see how terrible it is. Um, uh, but, a, but a better way to do that that's more productive and less intellectually painful uh, is write something that you want to publish, you think is good and then don't publish it and then come back to it in six months and or three months. Um, and you're like, wow, like my grammar construction and was, it was very poorly, was not concise and such. And, after you've done that a few hundred times uh, with, and being real hard on yourself, it, that typically helps improve. But it, it's a pretty intellectually painful process. I also edit this podcast and I have to listen to myself afterwards. So, uh, yeah, that sucks. Um, I know, it's, <laughs> good <learning. laughs> it's, I know it's a good learning experience. So I'll look back in six months and probably be like, wow, what were you doing back then? But, yeah, it's a good learning experience. Yep. I'm not going to do rapid fire. Uh, I just want to ask two final questions. Um, very generic cliche questions, which I'm, I'm sure Kyle won't like, but uh, number one is you obviously talk to a lot of founders, um, especially in the crypto space. What is one piece of advice you'd give to crypto founders? Don't listen to crypto Twitter. <laughs> do, do what you think is best. 
And what is one piece of writing advice you would give? I, this depends on what your objectives are as it pertains to writing. Uh, if your goal is to, if, if, if your goal is to improve the own quality of your thinking, uh, then you need cadence, um, or you need, you need reps. So you, you need to set a defined schedule of writing X number of things per week. Let's just say X is one, uh, cause you can't, you don't have the time to do more than one. Uh, it doesn't have to be public and it doesn't have to be face published. It doesn't need to be publicly facing, but it needs to be something that like passes whatever you think the, the intellectual bar is for like intellectually interesting. Um, and obviously that that's going to have some context dependence depending on the nature of your business. Uh, and try and produce one of those per week. And, and it could just be internal, like do you keep to yourself or it could be something you share with your team um, or it could be a public facing document. Uh, but force yourself to go through that process of write, refine, edit your own stuff. And you just need to do that a lot of times. I haven't been doing this a lot now, but when I was trying to write uh, one article per week, one thing you notice too is you actually start noticing things. And, and what do I mean by that is like, you know, you have to produce content that week. So throughout your day, you're actually going to notice events that you're like, hey, I should write about that. Or that's interesting. Or I should think about that differently. Um, but Kyle, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, this is an amazing conversation. I recommend everybody to read all of your blogs They're on multicoin.com. Um, I'll put all the links in the show notes. Um, but yeah, thanks again. This was a really great conversation. Uh, Garrett Mert, thanks for having me on. Also, our URL is multicoin.capital. Uh, <laughs> multicoin.com is, I think they, they keep trying to sell it to us and I keep not, you know, bidding their stupid numbers. But anyways, thank you all for be, having me on. Awesome to be here. Excited to be an early member of Lightspeed and excited to see this thing go up and to the right. Right.